Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. Today's topic is all about what your mission in life is. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. So I, I already spoke a little about um, healthcare workers and the, the mission, the life-saving mission they're engaged in right now. And I think that this is a very, very important message that I want to share with you about all of us feeling, and not just feeling, but knowing that each of us has a mission and a purpose in life, what the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe used to call the shlichus. You, you've seen these Chabad rabbis all over the world. They're on a mission. They have a shlichus, they have an agency, a mission. They've been sent to some community to inspire the community with Torah, with mitzvah. And there's a story of an older man sitting in a restaurant in Kansas City. And if you read my book, you'll recognize this story. And if you haven't read my book, well, then shame on you. This is an opportunity. You have all this extra free time. Call up, don't call up Amazon. They won't answer the phone. There's no phone at Amazon. I am so backward. You just go online beyond the instant and I think it's like 15 bucks. You can get the book if you haven't gotten it yet. Um, I would send you one from MGE. I got a few hundred books left in my office, but um, that's just too complicated to get there and get it to you. Just buy it on Amazon. Uh, there's a story that I shared in the book. It's a true story of an older man sitting in a restaurant in Kansas City and he's enjoying dinner. He's minding his own business. And another man about two tables away keeps looking at him. You know, you know, when you see someone, you can't quite pin them. And finally, he recognizes him. And he gets up and he walks over to the table and he says, you're, you're Captain Plum. And the older guy looks up and says, yeah, I am Captain Plum. You, the other man says to him, you flew jet fighters in Vietnam. You were on the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. You were shot down. You parachuted into enemy hands and spent six years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And the older man looks back and he says, how in the world did you know all that? It's 100% accurate. Well, the reason I know that, he says, because I was the guy who packed your parachute. Captain Plum rose to his feet. He held out his hand. And he said, thank you for packing my parachute. I guess I owe you. I have to thank you for my life. And this story is a true story. And it's a very powerful one for many reasons. First of all, we're all enamored with jet fight, with Top Gun jet fighters. You know, the guys with the cool sunglasses, leather jackets, they fly around at the speed of light. But we never really think about all the sailors down below packing the parachutes for those cool jet fighters to take off with. And the role that they play in folding those parachutes, which is very nitpicky and uh, just mundane and boring, can we really say it's any less important than the guy who's up in the jet fighting the bad guys? You know, there's an amazing Parsha in the Torah that speaks about the Chanukah Tanisim, the dedication of the tabernacle. We just read and this last week's Parsha Parshat Shmini of the death of the two sons of Aaron in the midst of this great inauguration of the tabernacle. And the command 
um, to light the menorah was given to none other than Aaron. But as much as that was a prestigious um, and beautiful kind of ritual that Aaron was privileged to perform the lighting of the menorah, he seemed to have been completely left out of the ceremony, of this prestigious ceremony. And Rashi tells us, the great biblical commentator, that he, his portion was supposed to be greater than all the other princes. And the princes of each tribe, they were like the senators of each tribe, they were given other tasks and they were involved in the inauguration, but not Aaron. He was just given the simple task of lighting the menorah. Now the Chanukah Tanisim, the inauguration, was a huge deal. It was a lot of pomp and circumstance. It was performed in front of the whole community. The lighting of the menorah that Aaron was given, and Aaron was the high priest, he was a big man, Moses' brother. That lighting of the menorah honestly could have been done by anyone. You don't need a special, to be a special person just to light a candle. And it was not done publicly, it was done privately. How is Aaron okay with this? You don't see any complaint from Aaron. Aaron gets his job, and he seems to be very content with it. How is he okay with something that was so humble and private? And the answer is because Aaron understood that just because something isn't public, just because something doesn't involve pomp and circumstance and fanfare, and it's in front of everybody, and it's on Facebook Live for the world to see, doesn't mean it's any less important of a divine task and mission because everyone has their role in life. And some people's roles tend to be more public and some people's roles tend to be more private. But each person has what's called in Hebrew, a shlichut. A shlichut is an agency, a mission. We were sent here for a reason. Sefer Shmuel happened to be studying the book of Samuel and now. Um, Jill and I are participating in what's called the Nach Yomit program where we study chapter of the prophets each day. We're a little behind, but we're catching up. And there's an amazing um, story where Saul, who's a king, becomes increasingly jealous of the young hero, David. King David, but he's very young here. He's, no, he's not a king yet. And David is becoming more and more popular. And Saul is now viewing David as a bit of a threat to his throne, so much so that David begins to fear for his own life. There were fights within the Jewish community. And David turns to his best friend, Jonathan, for help. I want to welcome everyone who's come on, David Broxmeyer, and Yitz Friedman, and Chloe, and Hadassah. I'm doing a little Peloton moment here. Jason Horn, Shadi, Tanya, Ezi Rappaport. Hey, Ezi, how are you, man? Joseph. Hey, good to have you, Joseph. Avi Poznik, Liesl. Oh my God, so many people. Beautiful to have all of you guys with us today, Lunch and Learn. So Jonathan is David's best friend. He's also Saul's eldest son. Those of you who just tuned in, David is fearful for his life. David turns to his best friend, Jonathan, for help. And Jonathan, who's Saul's eldest son, tells David that he'll sound out his father. In the meantime, David should hide in the field behind this large rock called Azel. And Jonathan tells David that three days from now, I will come with my servant, with my Na'ar, and I will shoot, I will have him shoot three arrows in your direction. And I, I will shoot the arrows rather than I'll send my servant running after the arrows. And if I shoot the arrows so they fall short of where you are, then that's a sign that all is well 
and you can come out of hiding. But if my servant shoots the arrows beyond where you're hiding, then that is a signal that my father seeks to destroy you and you must quickly flee. Jonathan quickly realizes that his father, Saul, considers his best friend David a traitor and that he wants him killed. And the next morning, Jonathan goes with his young servant. He aims his arrows well beyond where David is is hiding. And when David sees the Na'ar, when David sees the servant running beyond him, he realizes things are not good. It's not safe. He needs to run away. And he flees and he stays hidden until Saul Saul is told by God he's no longer king and David is eventually crowned king of Israel. Now, it's a very technical little story, but if I asked you, who are the main characters of that story? Who are the main characters of that story? Most of us would probably say, I'll give you a minute if you'd like to comment in the uh, chat, uh, the Facebook Live. I know that there's a little delay. Who are the main individuals in that story that we just reviewed? Who would you say? Give you another second. That's the way they used to wait for people's answers on those uh, game shows. Yeah. I used to watch game shows growing up. Good. Joseph is suggesting King David. He's a main character. Who else would be a main character? Saul. Jonathan. Okay. Who are we leaving out? Ladies and gentlemen, listening. Who are we leaving out from the story? When we talk about the main characters in the story, we talk about Saul, we talk about David, we talk about Jonathan. You know who we're leaving out? What about the servant that's running after the arrows? What part did he play? This is so appropriate. I'm going to quote Rabbi Lamb now. Hey, welcome, Evan Rabin. Right, Olga, the guy that shot the arrows. Olga, I believe that you wrote that before I gave the answer (laughs) because there's a delay. The boy who was sent to run after the arrows, what part did he play? And Rabbi Lamb dedicating this talk to Rabbi Lamb, to, to Rabbi Lamb's the soul of Rabbi Lamb's wife, Mindy Lamb, who just passed. Rabbi Lamb wrote that if it wasn't for the lad, the servant, who knew nothing of the great drama that was unfolding, David may never have become king of Israel and ultimately the ancestor of our Messiah. The Na'ar, the servant, plays a vital role. Now, our natural reaction, welcome, Aliana, Shudrick, Hope you're doing well, Ariana. Welcome, Eddie Zarabi. Our natural reaction is to focus on the big people. David, Jonathan, right? Everybody's infatuated, whether you like the president, you hate the president. Everyone's got to talk about the president. Senators, these are the big shots in American politics. They're the ones on TV all the time. And the natural reaction is to focus on the big people. Here in the story would be David and Jonathan and to overlook all the others. And we're doing this more and more in our society today. I remember when I grew up, there was this one program, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I forgot the guy's name. He had this really distinct voice. And he would take you into rich and famous people's homes to look at their, you know, palatial mansions and and look at this and look at that. Wow, unbelievable. Show after show, so we can see how the most important people live. I remember, by the way, this is a total aside. I was watching... Uh, the show. Yeah, I used to like watching it. Now there's like a million of those shows. And uh, I'm not going to mention who it was, but it was a very famous celebrity who had like six homes. 
and they were showing us one of their great and crazy, crazy homes. Robin Leach, Maya. I was going to say you're the man, but Maya's not a man. She's a lovely young woman who works for MJE. And I want to thank Maya for all her great help. And Robin Leach. And I remember, <laughs> I remember the home he said was worth, I don't know, $13, $14 million. This is years ago. And it was one of like six homes that the person owned. And Robin Leach was trying to give a little praise to the person by saying how charitable this person is. And I remember on the screen, he, they flashed what the person, what that, that celebrity gave for charity that year. It was $100,000 they gave for charity. And they flashed the, the letters, 100000 100000 100000 And $100,000 is a lot of money to give to Staka. But if a person owns a home for $14 million and they own five other homes as well, what are you bragging about $100,000? Now, that's not the point of my class, and I'm sorry to beat, beat up that celebrity, but I didn't mention the person's name, so it's not Lush and Haru. But I just wanted to throw that in. The Torah is teaching us a very, very famous lesson here, and that all of us matter. And I know that sounds very trite, but each of us matters whether you're driving a cab or you're curing cancer, just like the sailor packing the parachute or the na'ar, the servant in the story in the book of Samuel, because each of us has a role. The only question is, have you identified your role? And do you take your role seriously? Do you say, I'm just like another cog in the wheel. I work at some factory and there's 1,200 of us you know, in this brokerage house. None of us is really doing anything that important. Or maybe the big CEO, the big guy's on top. No. Now, it's as difficult if you're, let's say, in a big factory or in a big company, or you're not the CEO, you know, you're just you know, one of the many employees there. If you're a teacher or, or, or a therapist or you're a physician, and particularly today if you're a physician, every day, seven o'clock in New York City, open up your window and cry and scream out, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's easier to feel a sense of purpose and mission. And I was speaking to Khani, whose husband, Alan, is a dear friend, such a huge, huge mention. He's got all of these. He's got the whole gear on all day with a mask, three masks he has to wear. And I'm sure that he is feeling completely exhausted, but also probably very valuable in terms of his mission and his purpose in this world. He is saving people's lives. But let's say you're involved in the grind of the financial world, or you're an attorney. I went to law school, I had a lot of friends who got jobs in you know, nice big law firms, but it's like pouring over contracts all day. It's important to realize that your work is necessary to create a fair and just society. You see what happens. Or simply for the economy to continue to function properly. Look what's going on in the world because so many normal, plain jobs are being lost. Now we're starting to actually appreciate a normal, plain job because so many people have been furloughed, so many people are in unemployment, right? Simply going to work and doing your job faithfully is important for the world because the way the world's economy operates is not simply with Bill Gates and all the other rich people on top. Obviously, their work in a purely financial sense means a lot more than a lot of other people's work who are not making as much. But in order for the world's economy to function properly, 
in order for people to feel a sense of self-worth, in order for life to function normally. We are not living in normal times. This is not a normal time, Corona. Everybody's locked up at home. Okay, we need to do that. We have to practice social distancing. We have to be strict about it, right? Please God, I, we hope, we hope we're turning the curve now. But what you do matters and you need to see how it matters. And the same applies in the spiritual realm. No human being is here accidentally. None of us was created haphazardly or just was sort of extra. Every human being was created for a very specific purpose and every human being has a special mission to carry out. I share the story, you know, and, and, and by the way, sometimes we can see the mission and sometimes it escapes us. Once in a while we get a little glimpse. Once in a while we get a little reminder from God that yeah, that happened for a reason. That situation, that person was in my life for a very particular reason. It's an amazing story is told of a Jewish student. I told this in my book back in the 1970s, long time ago. He was applying to college in DC and it happened to be a Catholic university. It's called the Catholic University of America. And during the interview, the priest who was conducting the interview, and it was a Jewish man, it was a regular college, but it happened to be a Catholic college. And the priest tells the young Jewish applicant that we've decided to accept you to our school. And I just have one request, and your admittance into the school is not dependent on this, on, on you answering this question in the affirmative. But I'm just wondering, would you meet with me each week to study the Bible with Rashi's commentary? Bizarre question to get from a priest. How does a priest know who Rashi? And he wants to study Bible with me, maybe he wants to convert me. I don't know. The kid wanted to get into the school. He wanted to, you know, he thought like even though it wasn't dependent on it, he would still ingratiate himself. So the student was taken a little back, but he agreed. And for the next four years, the true story, the priest and the Jewish student met every week to study Chumash, the Bible, the five books of Moses with the commentary of Rashi, a French biblical commentator. And at the end of the college experience, the student turns to the priest in their last session. He says, I gotta understand this. Tell me, tell me, why did you wanna study Torah with me all this time? And the priest answers with his own little story. I don't know if you've heard this, it's a very famous story in the Asia Torah world, okay? And you'll hear in a minute why. He says, when I was younger, the priest tells the student, I took off a year to go to Israel to study in seminary. There are actually Christian seminaries in Israel, in Jerusalem. And once I went to visit the Western Wall and it was on the Sabbath, it was a Friday night, and someone approached me and very graciously asked me if I'd like to join a family in the old city of Jerusalem for a meal. You know, by the way, that was a very common practice. Mayor Schuster, who I knew very well, blessed memory, he must have brought thousands of thousands of backpackers visiting the Kotel on a Friday night back to a home for a Shabbat meal. And they saw some young guy, can't tell if he's Jewish or not, you assume most people at the Kotel are Jewish, and they asked him, would you like a, 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 a meal? He says, I was hungry. And I said, sure, why not? And I ended up having a dinner at a rabbi's home. Lovely rabbi, very wise. His name was Rabbi Noah Weinberg. And it happened to be that he was the head of this very large yeshiva in the old city called Asha Torah. I was very impressed with the rabbi. He invited me to study in his yeshiva, which I did. And I was there for months, but I had to go back to America. So I went to meet with Rabbi Weinberg to thank him for his hospitality. And he asked me why I couldn't stay in Israel longer and do some more studying. And I told him, 
I have to go back to the States to continue my Catholic studies so I can become a priest. And oh my God, you should have seen the rabbi's face turn white. He had no idea that I wasn't Jewish. I didn't think it mattered to share that. I was there, they seemed so gracious to, to teach me Bible and the Torah studies. And he didn't seem very happy when he learned that uh, he had a practicing or a, a, uh, a, a student, uh, you know, learning to become a priest in his yeshiva. But the rabbi turned to me and with a smile, he said, promise me you'll do something for me. He says, one day, one day, no doubt, a Jew will cross your path. Will maybe come one day to study at a seminary where you're teaching, or you'll meet him in some other context. Promise me you will teach that Jew, whoever it is, what we taught you here. And of course I obliged. It was so hospitable. Teaching you, the priest turns to the young man at the end of his college. Teaching you was my way of keeping my promise to the good rabbi. And of course this young man, who already loved to study Torah with the priest, continued to study and learn and eventually became a very learned and observant Jew. And I really believe when I heard the story that that priest was a shaliach. The priest was an emissary and he was sent to help that young Jewish student on his spiritual journey. Every person has a mission. It's just that we don't always get to see it. And it's not just world leaders or people with lots of money. You know, we're gonna be having some discussions in the next week about Israel. Uh, tomorrow, the next day, we're gonna talk a little about the Holocaust, and also tomorrow we'll be speaking about um, how people specifically maintain positive attitudes in the face of adversity. Uh, we're going to discuss some aspects of the Omer that we're in now and some fascinating Jewish history that relates to dealing with adversity leading in to something like the Holocaust. And then the following day, we're going to actually talk about the Holocaust itself. I have some important um, information and knowledge that I'd like to share with you that I did some work on when I was in graduate school on the U.S. diplomatic response to Kristallnacht, to the beginning of the Holocaust, who knew what, when, and I think it's very, very important information to know. So the next two days is going to be about that kind of material, and then we're going to talk about Israel, because Yom Atzma'ut is next week. And the state of Israel, <clears throat> we're going to be celebrating independence next week, was not just built... <clears throat> by Theodor Herzl and David Ben-Gurion. But it was also built by guys, by a guy named Murray from Queens and David from Brooklyn. And I'm referring to specific people when I say Murray from Queens and David from Brooklyn. On the MJ trip each summer, we're still trying to figure out if we're going to Israel this summer. We hope, we hope we still can. But on the MJ trip to Israel each summer, we brought our group to meet a, a guy by the name of Murray Greenfield from Farakaway, Queens. At the age of 17, Murray went to Palestine to smuggle in Holocaust survivors from Europe during the British mandate. And um, we always hear from another guy, David, from Brooklyn, who when he was 18 decided to make Aliyah, and in the next year, when he was 19, was drafted into the Israeli army to fight in the Six-Day War and was part of the liberation of the city of Jerusalem. Now, most people, and I imagine no one here has ever heard of Murray Greenfield or David Sprung. I have had the honor of knowing 
David Sprung and Murray Greenfield for many years because of our trip to Israel. Now, are they less important than Theodor Herzl or David Ben-Gurion? Theodor Herzl was the brain child, if you will, behind the modern state of Israel. David Ben-Gurion was the first prime minister of the state of Israel, fought and led the battle in 1948 during Melchemet HaShachur. We're going to talk about that in the War of Independence. But Murray and David also had an important mission in creating the state of Israel. And we have to stop only focusing on the fit and the rich and the famous people and find our own personal mission in life. And it very much relates also to us on a deep spiritual level. We believe that all human beings are comprised of body and soul. But the Orachayim HaKadosh, one of the great Kabbalists, <clears throat> he was a commentator on the Torah, he said that although every human being has a body and a soul, the Jew has a third component, body and soul, like anyone else. Plus, he says, and I'll read it to you in Hebrew, Chelek HaTorah HaMeureset Lechol Yisrael, which is a portion of Torah, which is Meureset, which is a betrothed to each and every Jew. Every single Jewish person has their own metaphysical connection to Torah. It's a spiritual connection that we believe God created us with, with Judaism, even before we came into this world. And it's a connection which is unique to each and every Jewish person, separate and distinct and different from our fellow Jew. And therefore, for whatever reason, a person decides not to cultivate their own special chelik ha-Torah, their own special portion of Torah, it becomes avud me'olam, says the Orachayim. Avud me'olam means it becomes lost from the world. Because you have something unique to contribute to the Jewish community. And I'm speaking in a deeply spiritual sense. There's something in your soul that is uniquely connected to Torah, that is connected in a way that other Jewish people are not. And either you grab onto it, cultivate it and use it, or it's avud me'olam, it becomes lost from the world. It's not like I'm sitting next to my friend, <clears throat> I see he's not eating his chocolate cake for dessert. And I say, hey, Bob, it doesn't look like you're eating chocolate cake. Do you mind if I take your piece? Sure, enjoy it. Chocolate cakes taste great, double portion. And no double portions. I can't enjoy someone else's chelak ha-Torah Yisrael. It's unique to me. And we also believe when a person converts to Judaism, that's one of the things that they're now developing for themselves as well. And so when we at MGE, for example, reach out and try to reconnect our Jewish brothers and sisters who may be less connected to their Yiddishkeit, to their Judaism, we're not simply trying to combat intermarriage or assimilation. Of course, we're trying to do that. But ultimately, on a deeper spiritual sense, we're trying to help our fellow Jews realize their own unique portion of Torah, their own special mission that they and they alone can cultivate and be cultivated. You know, I was just talking to a friend of mine, I want to wish him Mazel Tov, had a lot of deaths, unfortunately, but uh, uh, by the way, Nava Sultan, she just posted a little girl, I want to wish Nava uh, Mazel Tov. Um, so beautiful to see that. Um, but my friend and student, uh, Roger Goldberg, who now goes by Ruven Goldberg, 
who made Aliyah a couple of years ago. He was a regular at MJE in the fellowship program. And he's an amazing, amazing guy. And um, he just had um, a little boy. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking about Roger now. Because he was not really so connected. Someone got him to come. There's a whole story about his participation, participation in MJE. But what would have happened had he just not come and such a brilliant guy, so smart and insightful and his learning, his Torah study is on such a high, deep level now. And all of that would never have been created or developed. It was there, but it needs to be cultivated and developed. And now I'm going to go back to not simply the spiritual, but this applies professionally. This applies um, socially. I do believe also Right, the, mission, the uh, Talmud tells us that there's a special person out there for everyone, and there's a part of your soul, there's a part of your soul that's supposed to be connected to someone else, the concept of Beshert, right? Um, and there's a part of our soul that's supposed to be connected to Torah, and there's a part of our soul, I also believe, that is supposed to produce and accomplish certain things in this world. And if you can't find the value in what you do professionally, by the way, that's okay. You can bang your head against the wall and say, all I'm doing is making widgets. The rabbi said I have to find my mission. How can I find a mission in making little widgets all day? Or making rich people richer? Well, I will tell you something. Making widgets is an important, I'll answer that two ways. Number one, making widgets is important because without those widgets, some factory can't have the thing that they need in order to produce the product they need and that's the way the world works. That's number one. Number two, uh, if you are making wealthy people wealthier, that's also a great thing. As long as you're giving charity and you're helping people that are not wealthy and you're using, and hopefully the, your clients, because they're making more money, are able to give more money away. Okay, you know, many of you know how much time I spend fundraising, how reliant MGE is on the generosity of wealthy people or people who aren't so wealthy. Please continue to support MGE at this time. It has not been easy. And we're continuing to pray for the government to help us out. We applied for that uh, grant uh, from the U.S. government. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, but this is extremely, extremely important that we find our purpose and mission. And if you can't find it in what you do professionally, then the professional, the money that you're making from what you're doing, from what you think is so meaningless, at least the money you're making is enabling you to live and to serve Hashem to study his Torah, to perform his mitzvah, to do acts of kindness for other people. That money is integral, so you can pay your rent, you can pay your bills, you can have food to eat. And then you, and then you can live and do great things with your life. Some people decide to do that. They say, you know what, I'm not gonna find all my meaning and purpose in my work, in my profession. I just wanna make a lot of money so that I can give some of it away and I have enough free time to be able to do meaningful things for other people in this world or help an organization or study Torah, or just be involved in meaningful, uplifting things. Extremely, extremely important to think about that. And if God forbid, I'm gonna say God forbid, if you're out at your, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it happens. A lot of people have been furloughed, a lot of people are without work, a lot of people, right? To say that that's not the only thing that defines my meaning and my purpose in life. Uh, we should put a link for donations, okay? Uh, I can't really do it right here, right now, but if anyone from MJE is on, um, is on here, you want to put the link for donations, I, I thank you.
uh, Andy, for that suggestion. Or you can just go on to jewishexperience.org. Uh, you can just type in jewishexperience.org and make a donation to MGA. I really appreciate it. Uh, we are working extremely hard to keep everyone on staff at MGA so that we can continue to uh, provide, at least virtually, uh, all of the same programs. And we're we're already planning for the programs. We're going to get back when we get to see you again in person soon. Should be quick and soon. But Roger, my student in Israel, Reuven, found his chilek of Torah, his portion of Torah, which is me'ureset to him, which is betrothed to him and to him alone. And that's a shlichut. That's, that, that's a kind of mission. Chabad believes they have that kind of shlichut. Go wherever you need to go. If there's a Jew somewhere, that's the old joke, you know you're in civilization if there's at least a 7-Eleven and a Chabad house wherever you live. Okay, and God bless them for doing that. And the truth is we all are on that shlichut. Everyone has a shlichut. Everyone has a purpose and a mission in life. Our purpose is to connect with Hashem, our spiritual source, to use the mitzvot and to cultivate that unique part of our soul that is me'ureset to us, which is betrothed to us and to us alone. Thank you, whoever just posted the link. That is one of our missions. Our, our mission is also to help other people and not to live for ourselves. One of the great themes running throughout the book, uh, Beyond the Instant. If you want to have Beyond the Instant um, contentment and long-term happiness, then we have to devote ourselves to other people and to causes in which we believe and to get ourselves out of ourselves. Talked about this all the time. That's part of our mission in this world, not to be so focused on ourselves. I uh, just share with you something I heard from my colleague and dear friend, Rabbi Mark Penner, who's the head of the rabbinical school at Yeshim University. My son was listening to him this morning, and he said the first word out of the Jew's mouth in the morning. What do we say? Modeh. Right? We say the modeh ani lefanecha. We thank God for giving us life. But before we say the word ani, modeh ani, I am thankful, we say thank you. We focus it on someone else. We put the word thank before me. I thank you, O God, modeh ani, I am thankful. The word I comes after the word thank, because the first word out of our mouths in the morning should be thank you and should be not about us. And the irony of ironies, and I've spoken about this before many, many times, that the greatest happiness comes when we focus on other people, when we give to others, when we commit ourselves to ideals and ideas that are beyond our own mind, our own selves. And that's why um, I'm going to end with a blessing that each and every one of us should find our own mission and purpose in life. And if you're starting to get down, and if you haven't gotten down yet during this corona thing, then I don't know where you're living because a lot of us are getting down. I've gotten just so many emails from so many older people that I know supporters of the organization, friends, parents, and grandparents that have passed away. And it's really, it's really depressing. It's really upsetting. And again, I want to devote this Torah in the memory of Mrs. Lamb, who just passed away, who was such a positive, uplifting, uplifted person. And she would want all of us to have a smile because she always smiled and she was always happy. And she was always such a giving, giving person. I think she was happy because she and Rabbi Lamb, Chayim, should live and be well to 120. Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, 
devoted their lives. She devoted her life to the Klal, to the community. And when your life is devoted to other people, it literally prolongs your life and it literally brings happiness and joy. It gives us that long-term kind of contentment and happiness for the long run. Um, I want to thank you, Andrea, for that very, very beautiful um, gesture and offer to go um, to the Rebbe's caver to give a donation. It's very, very beautiful. I appreciate that. I'm very touched. This is a beautiful opportunity we have to think about our purpose and mission in life. What are we doing? And if we can't find the purpose and mission in our work professionally, it's okay. It's okay. Let's look for it in some other component or aspect of our lives. Um, and maybe we can find it a little more in what we do professionally. We should for sure find it in what we do spiritually, in the praying we do in the morning, the mitzvah that we observe. All of those mitzvot are there to help us. All of those mitzvot are there to help us be connected and to feel like we were put here for a reason. We weren't created haphazardly, accidentally. We were a deliberate thought, if you will, in the mind of, the, of our Creator. He put us on this earth for a very specific purpose and mission. And my blessing is that each and every one of us should find that purpose and mission. And if you're questioning what that is, maybe question it on the professional level, spiritually. The Torah was given to us as a tool guide to be able to use to cultivate that spiritual purpose and mission. So we all know what that purpose and mission, to remain connected to our source through the beautiful Torah that Hashem gave us. And when we live that kind of life, it spills over and creates <clears throat> a light, a certain illumination for all of the peoples of the world. Because the Torah was given to us as a gift to share with all of humanity. That doesn't mean we have to go and convince other people and try to convert people to Judaism. No, it means that we live a life of Torah and mitzvot, and that becomes a model. You know the best way to model, the best way to teach is to model behavior, not to preach, but to practice. The more we practice the Torah, the more light is brought into the world, and the more all of humanity is elevated. This is what the Kabbalists teach. That's our purpose, that's our mission, spiritually. I also believe, as I've said, there's a purpose and a mission professionally in terms of the relationships we have with other people. Let's think of ourselves as fulfilling that purpose and mission. Even if you're stuck at home and you're quarantined and you're trying to wait out this corona thing, you've got a phone, you've got social media devices to make an impact on other people and to make the world a better place. I want to reiterate again the instruction to anyone who has recovered from Corona, Baruch Hashem, thank God, contact your local hospital and offer to donate uh, plasma. Keep opening your window at seven o'clock. Thank your, uh, all the uh, healthcare professionals whose mission and purpose is obviously very, very clear, but don't think they're the other one, only ones right now with a mission and purpose by virtue of the fact that we are given another day and we are given the, 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 the gift of life and that we're surviving this means that Hashem believes that we still have work to do in this world. And therefore, we begin our day with the word modeh. Thank you. And I'm going to take my purpose and my mission seriously. Never take our existence for granted. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we will meet back tomorrow again for 
for lunch and learn, and I encourage you to come each and every day. I have some really uh, interesting and inspiring words and some stories I want to share with you tomorrow about people who've been affected by tragedy and difficulty and have come back. It's really one of the lessons of Yom HaShoah that we're getting closer to. The following day, we'll get a little more deeper into that and then start talking about Israel, which is going to be celebrated next week. Also want to mention tomorrow night, again, you're welcome, Liesl, and thank you all for your encouragement. My dear friend and old friend, Gail Peck-Rauner, thank you for those beautiful words of encouragement. Also, Gail, uh, during our, I think, Kabbalat Shabbat, um, you know, it's hard staring at these screens and entertaining. Really appreciate the positive feedback from so many people. And please join us tomorrow night to hear Dr. Moshe Avital, a Holocaust survivor, tell his amazing story. And we'll get some advice from him, uh, from someone who can really uh, teach us to how to deal with difficulty and stress in life. Uh, I thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful and beautiful day. And stay strong and stay healthy. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.